Hello, and welcome to Black Magic Treehouse, the podcast that digs into the creepy kid culture of the past one bargain bin item at a time. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Jose. Hold on, I think the Zoom... Wait, we don't record on Zoom. I think the Wi-Fi is cutting out, Jose... You know what? I'll just fly over there and join you in person. Insert plane sound here. <laughs> Insert harp sound to show a passage of time here. I'm the other host, Eric. Hi, Jose. Hello. It is so good to have you here. And uh, guess what, listeners? It is... It is for realsies, even though Eric was being uh, kind of playfully coy about joining us. Believe it or not, though we have been separated by vast distances before of time and space, even though we have both occupied the same treehouse, uh, this actually marks the first time that we are in a real space, truly, really, really, really together. Um, and I know that's the moment you've all been waiting for. And we're here to deliver it to you and deliver on those expectations. Um, how does that make this episode any different from the others? Well, it doesn't really, to be honest. Um, if only for the fact that now it allows us to talk about our topic today in uh, hopefully a little bit more of a dynamic way. Did you like that ASMR book flapping sounds for your listening pleasure there? Uh, we have a pile of books right here in front of us in true treehouse fashion that we are going to be digging through and reminiscing on. And if you uh, happen to see the title of today's episode before you press play, or this will come as a surprise if this just autoplayed in your podcatcher of choice and you're now being uh, subjected to whatever we have for you. We have a big old pile of Goosebumps books in front of us. And um, we did say in like the very first episode, which is uh, when we covered Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, that we would not be doing a Goosebumps exclusive podcast. Uh, there are plenty of those out there. Uh, but you know what? The siren call of R.L. Stein's song which has just forced me to picture R.L. Stein as a mermaid on the rocky shore serenading sailors as they pass by, which I hope is an image that lives rent-free in your brain forever, as it will now mine. Uh, it just keeps pulling us in, no matter how far ashore we try to sail and explore other waters, other lands within the realm of creepy kid literature. Um, I mean, Goosebumps are the gargantuan Goliath at the heart of it all. So we're using this opportunity that we're now together officially to dig through these bad boys and reminisce on them. And I feel like I just talked for five minutes straight. So I'm going to hand the microphone over to Eric now. <laughs> oh, what do you want me to say? I don't know. Well, Goosebumps. Hey, that was a series that we read and watched on television, Fox Kids Network. Um yeah, Jose has a collection of Goosebumps books, and I saw them on the shelf, and I said, let's just uh, grab those bad boys, spread them out all over your your bed, <laughs> and then talk about them. Um, and you don't have every book in the collection, but you have, I don't know, like half, maybe? 
of the OG series. And then I also grabbed, I have, personally, I have zero experience with anything after the original series, which I think I've talked about on a different episode, Um, except for I read the first book in the 2000 series, uh, which is here somewhere. Yeah, Cry of the Cat. And I was really disappointed because the whole idea of the 2000 series was that it was supposed to be like um, more frightening or whatever, Mm -hmm. more higher stakes. Uh, 2000 times the scares is the tagline on the back of that book. And then there was um, nothing that happened in this book, as far as I recall. Tornado of cats. There was 2,000 times more cats than you got in any of the other ones. I suppose so. R.L. Stein likes to do tornadoes of, of things. Yeah. I feel like there's multiple Fear Street books where the, all the ghosts come together in a big tornado okay. spinning, spinning around the room. I could see that. That's a pretty, that is a pretty cool way for ghosts to come in. Um, okay, well, I was... I was never. I was going to give him that. I mean, for especially um, readers of that age, I think, yeah, that is probably pretty silly. Um, but as a kid, if there was a ghost tornado in a Goosebumps book, I I probably would have bought into that, I think. Ghost tornado. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the first thing that I notice is when you see these all on the shelf with their spines facing out, uh, I exclusively remember the font for the Goosebumps on the side as being the same as the goosebumps on the front cover, that like drippy, bloody effect. But looking at the series, that didn't kick in until around number 20. Mm-hmm. So like a full third of the original books did not have the goosebumps font on the side. And I just can't believe it took them that long to get there. Like it took them over a year of the series being successful to realize that they should put the iconic font on the side of the book too. And it's funny because it's not like they didn't have it. It's right there on the front of the book. It's even got the little registered mark uh, right next to it. So it's like, why would you not just translate that to the spine? Which, in all likelihood, especially um, if you had, um, you know, boring media centers as a kid growing up in your local public school, uh, chances are all the books were filed spine out and there was no variation to that whatsoever um not to knock media specialists or librarians who still do that but i think we live in a day and age where the bookstore model has really shown its worth and i know as a media specialist myself that's how i mean i of course still have things spine out but i also have lots and lots um with the covers facing out and when you look at all the beautiful pieces done by Tim Jacobus on these covers. It's a shame that they didn't get to have their spot in the sun uh, more when we were growing up and be displayed fully and properly where we could appreciate them. Yeah, but I would like to avoid talking too much about the covers. I mean, it's kind of difficult Mm -hmm. because they are so part and parcel with the whole Goosebumps experience, but I've already pitched to Jose an episode where we do um, like a ranking of all of the OG Goosebumps covers, uh, so I don't want to do too much about those now and then just wind up repeating ourselves later. Um, but I guess some talk is inevitable because in a lot of cases I remember, like I'm holding Ghost Camp right now. I remember absolutely nothing that happens in Ghost Camp, uh, but I do remember this cover with all of the um, orange shirts and khaki shorts uh, 
uh, and all of the man, a record number of um, Converse are those Converse All Stars. Uh, a lot of chucks. Yeah, that Tim Jacobus loved to picture um, to illustrate. Uh, and then they, some of them were in hats, and they're all invisible except for the girl in the last, in the last row who's looking shocked at this procession of ghosts in front of her, like as though she hasn't been seeing them the entire time that she's been walking in formation. Yeah, did they just turn invisible? Is the question? Like, you know, as soon as they walk through the, the camp entrance, they were like, you know, what would be great right now? Let's all get invisible. And she was like, what? I didn't know that was part of the itinerary today. I think there was already a book called Let's All Get Invisible. Yes. Let's Except all. it was called Let's Get Invisible. Let's all, y'all get invisible. That was the, if it was said in the South, it would have been like, y'all, let's get invisible. And the tagline for this one is be all that you can't see, which is based on the army tagline of be all that you can be from around this time. And yeah, I'm not a fan of that. Uh, well, looking at all of these books, um, are there any general reminiscences, feelings, ideas, uh, specific s- iconic scenes that you particularly remember that you want to talk about? Well, I feel like as far as scenes, um, we could probably do that on a book-by-book basis. Um, just kind of taken as a whole. I have the impression that we were never allowed to actually read any more Goosebumps books. Well, I mean, in a way we're not. But, um, you know, we're just giving general reminiscences. In this uh, episode, I would say taken as a whole, um, and, I, and I know we just said, well, we're not going to talk about the artwork so much, um, but just taken as a whole, looking at them, because that's the first thing you see, um, I would say my reaction is the same as the reaction of many others, is that they just instill um, a lot of happiness in me. I love the color palette. I love that they're so, you know, bubbly and candy bright. Um, and they're not just all kind of uniform dark browns and grays and blacks. And I think that's one of the things that um, allows them to stand out. To uh, to be honest, though, a lot of like the ripoff, or shall we be you know be a little more generous and say copycat. <laughs> a lot a lot of the co- <laughs> a lot of the copycat you know books series that came out at the time also did the same thing. You know they had that kind of gaudy color palette but um you know obviously goosebumps has endured uh and even now like with some of the redone artwork that you see on like some of the reprints of the original 62 it that is still retained pretty consistently i think you know there are a lot of purples and pinks uh incorporated in there um you know those kind of sometimes to the detriment of the cover i would say yeah at times but i i i gotta admit i just i just like them nonetheless um so taken as a whole on a visual level they just instill a lot of uh, joy in me both for nostalgic reasons and also purely aesthetic ones what about you what about me what any general impressions or taking the series as a whole uh, yeah, well, it was called Goosebumps, and it was written by R.L. Stein. Um, the first one that I read was the one I'm holding in my hand right now, Piano Lessons Can Be Murder, because my sister, who's a year older than me, was reading the series at that time, and she had this one on her dresser. Uh, and I remember seeing it, and because I think... Well, we were talking about Dean Koontz earlier. I believe I had picked up 
a Dean Koontz book that was sitting on a nightstand that my dad was reading. And my mom yelled at me like, no, don't look in that. <laughs> like it was, uh, you know, immediately going to traumatize me or something after seeing like five random words on a page. Um, so yeah, so my association from that was like, oh, all horror books I'm not allowed to look at as opposed to like a horror novel for an adult I'm not allowed to look at. So I was looking at this Goosebumps book longingly, like, oh, I wish I could read that Goosebumps book on the dresser over there. My sister's allowed to read it, but she was also allowed to cut her own birthday cake, and I was not. And I remember I literally one year started crying because my sister's birthday is uh, a couple months before mine um, in March, and I remember being jealous that she got to cut her own birthday cake. And my mom said, in my memory, maybe I'm uh, misremembering or misattributing here, but in my memory, my mom was like, well, don't worry, we'll let you cut your birthday cake on your own birthday when that rolls around. And then my birthday did roll around, and she was like, no. And I was like, ah, why am I not the favorite? Um, and... uh Anyway, so <laughs> it also, building on the back of that, it just seemed like my sister got a lot of preferential treatment. She got to read these horror books that I wasn't even allowed to so much as crack open. Um, so then I picked it up and started reading it in secret because we shared a bedroom at this time up until we moved. When uh, I was nine and she was 10, we shared a bedroom. So I was just like sneaking it off the dresser and reading it Uh chapter by chapter and eventually my mom walked in on me and I like threw it like immediately just like threw it on the dresser like I wasn't doing anything (laughs) um and she was like uh you can read those I was like what I'm allowed to oh well I guess I don't really want to anymore then um just kidding I still stuck with the rest of the series and I read it even past the point when I no longer cared. <laughs> uh, there was a specific turning point in the series for me. Um, I'm, I was born in 87. So when did the series start? Like 92, 93? Yeah. So I was five when it started. Probably, let's see, when was Piano Lessons Can Be Murder come out? Like probably 93? Yeah, 93. Is your laptop about to sleep? So I was, yeah, so I was six when I started reading it. And so the series ended in 98, 97? Well, I was trying to find the actual, an actual book from the last, I don't know if you have the much coveted uh, no. Monster Blood 4. Which is funny how rare that thing is. Uh, this is from 97. My best friend is invisible. That's number 57. Monster Blood 4 was 62. So yeah. I'm going to say 97 because I feel like Goosebumps Series 2000 came out in 98. The first one came out in 98. We could look. We could look. Funny. Funny how everything was called 2000 from like 1997 to actually 2000. Yeah, 98. Okay. Um,. So yeah, I think there was a specific turning point for me when cuz we got as part of the, you know, Goosebumps fan club or whatever it was, we got every new one in the mail, you know, probably every month. And I remember there was a specific one that I unpacked 
from and like took it out of the box or whatever. And I was just like, are you kidding me with this? Like just from the moment of looking at the cover and I hated the book. And from that point on, like there's a very sharp division in my head of, you know, when goosebumps were good, quote unquote, and when they just got way too stupid and silly, uh, which leads to me perhaps being unfair to some of the books in the later series that maybe are better than I remember. But yeah, I, I wasn't saying what the title was because I was going to ask you if you had a similar experience and how that lined up with mine. Uh, I don't know. I think I, on the whole, was just dyed in the wool. Goosebumps fan. I stuck with everything. Uh, I read as many of the original 62 as I could. You're also four years younger than me, so... Yeah, that's probably worth noting that I, I, I was a baby uh, in comparison to Eric. Because um, I feel like all of Goosebumps Series 2000 had been released by the time I was in fifth grade. Um, so I, I had a lot of backlog of material to get through. Uh, but yeah, I stuck with... I read all the original 62 that I could... I don't think I actually read all of them, but I, tr- I certainly tried my damnness to. Of the original series? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever read, like, uh, Deep Trouble 2, because the only copy I ever came across was uh, one that had fallen into my hands, missing the first two chapters, and I was adamant that I would not bereave myself of two glorious chapters of a Goosebumps book without taking it in its in its proper full measure. Uh, so Deep that, Trouble 2 is one of the worst of the series, in my opinion, so I think you dodged a bullet there. Hooray! Uh, so yeah, there we go. My est- So I guess you could say things like that helped me keep my esteem of the series intact, uh, which is not to say that there weren't moments that I had that weren't like um, Eric's. I have a pretty good guess of what book he unboxed that day, <laughs> um, if I had to warrant a guess. But anyway, I still stuck through all of them. Even if I thought it looked cheesy or just bad, I read it anyway. I was just enamored with the series. Um, I read quite a few of the Give Yourself Goosebumps books, which was the you know Choose Your Own Adventure spinoff. Um, I think I might have mentioned before, I know I've said it to Eric, but I don't know if it's ever made it into an episode, that I, I read a lot of those. You know, I found them you know fun. Uh, for like the content but the the process of choosing my own adventure was infuriating because I would always invariably end up dying Um, and I don't know why that upset me so much I just felt like you know other people who had better handles on their lives could easily navigate these books and get themselves a happy ending which I would be interested to find out what like uh, in proportion what was the ratio of happy endings to, you know, like, uh, bad endings and like, were the odds even stacked up in my favor or anybody's favor reading these books? And I wonder if, you know, that was also the same for the, the, you know, the original choose your own adventure books. Like if there was just a preponderance of (laughs) untimely demises and like two or three happy endings that you had to be like super diligent about nav, (coughs) excuse me, about navigating too. Um, I think that was the case. I think they were mostly bad endings. Yeah, that seems like that's how they get you. Uh, I read all of those. I devoured the tales to give you goosebumps. 
I don't think there was anything with the Goosebumps moniker at the time that I was in like grade school and even early middle school. I don't think there was anything that had it crossed my path. I did not want to immediately read um, the series was, you know, and all the spinoff series, they were like my bread and butter. They ha- these are basically what made me a reader. Um, so yeah, I, I never gave up faith. Not even when like, yeah, things seemed at their most dire. <laughs> so did you, did you uh, hazard a guess as to which one was my turning point? I'm going to guess, and I know it's like the stock answer when it comes to, oh, yeah, Goosebumps, you know, especially toward the end of its original run. Um, I feel like this is the stock answer, you know, the the, the kicking post. Um, I'm going to say it was Chicken Chicken. <laughs> no, that was much later in the series. Damn it. It was almost pretty much almost the exact halfway point. Uh Number 33, The Horror at Camp Jelly Jam, which I don't think you own. I don't anymore. Um, Some copies I ended up getting rid of because as much as I love them, you know, the covers were either falling apart or, you know, the books just looked in bad shape. So as much as I wish to hold on to them, especially like the original 62, it's like, well, these are kind of grody. So it's time to part ways. But I don't have that one. Um, and it's funny, I feel like I've heard you say that before and I had totally forgotten. Yeah, I probably have. That seems, that seems early to me. I guess, again, in comparison to our ages, it's like, oh man, I, yeah, I, I, I stuck with, yeah, those, uh, those books from like the, the 30 range and thought, you know, they were perfectly fine. I actually thought that cover was pretty damn creepy, um, as a kid, just cause I had a thing about like eerie smiles, um, you know, that, I think that trope has been played pretty well to death, especially by this, you know, by this day and age. With the advent of an entire movie called Smile. Yeah, definitely. Um, So it's definitely lost its charm for me. But, um, oh, that's that's surprising. I mean, the story itself, like even if you got as far as reading that, that I could understand because it's like, yeah, that is a very goofy ass story. Yeah, anything about like... The horror being like, oh, no, it stinks. <laughs> it's like, I get that in real life that would be unpleasant. But in a book, that's not quite the visceral fear that I want to experience. It's like, oh, a big smelly monster. And it's like about all these. Again, it's like pretty dark from an adult point of view of like all these enslaved children yeah. having to wash this smelly monster. But as a kid, it's just like, ooh, come on. I want something to be like trying to kill them. Yeah. Eat them. Something. Yeah, and and I can see I the feeling that I get from like Goosebumps Reddit and all that is I think Jelly Jam has a pretty big following. Like I think people think of it as one of the better ones of the series. Yeah. So it, it really may have just been an age thing. Like just over the course of a month, like I became a man or something and was <laughs> like, Why am I wasting my time on these children's horror books? Just drivel. Uh, but uh, I can see that, especially for in comparison to some of the other well-worn tropes uh, that these books traded in. Uh, Camp Jelly Jam, if nothing else, you uh, can at least say, or or you can't. You don't have to. I'm not forcing anybody to do anything here. Uh, but you you can at least say that the idea was certainly unique <laughs> and not something that you would expect. 
Yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, well, you said that you were uh, completely enamored. Were there any in the original series that left you cold or unsatisfied? Yeah, I mean, even uh, I think, I think, I we talked about this maybe in the uh, Mummy's Tomb episode, but um, I remember like being like gru- like grudgingly reading some of them. And one of them was one from very early on that I kind of feel bad for, but I think I might have mentioned in that episode or a previous conversation that they were for totally like, um, I don't know, shall we say, at the expense of uh, uh, ostracizing some of our listeners potentially. Uh, it was just like the result maybe of like toxic masculinity. <laughs> and by that I mean um, I did not like be careful what you wish for. But I think it was because it was solidly what seemed to me in my mind's eye at the time is like, Oh, this is a girl story. Like even when you look at the cover, it's a girl on the cover. It's some ladies painted pointed fingernails by a crystal ball. You know, it's like too woo woo um, for like a guy, you know, like there's no ghost carrying its severed head or, you know, not even a, you know, really, effed up looking bunny with you know buck teeth and a malevolent glare popping out of a magic hat like there's nothing goofy or sophomoric enough about this for me to enjoy it but I'm and I and I feel like I've had heard in years since that yeah the story is kind of boring like nothing really happens that much but the reasons I did not like it were purely you know superficial and just playing into like gender stereotypes it's like oh this is a girl story it's just about making wishes dumb (laughs) which you know fast forward jokes on me uh monkey's paw is like one of my favorite stories of all time so what did i know uh but outside of that i would say there were some that definitely left me unsatisfied i'm looking at one right now which is you can't scare me and i feel like again this is one that we talked about before but it you know that one frustrated me because that was a short story in the form of a you know quote unquote middle grade chapter book because it takes they sell you the bill of rights they sell you bill of goods not the bill of rights they don't sell you the bill of rights they sell you a bill of goods with the cover with those awesome muck men you know rising up from the swamp they look awesome they look like an action figure that i would have wanted to play with endlessly as a kid but they don't come until the very end of the story because the whole premise is predicated on oh these you know this these group of kids trying to prank this you know fearless a girl i believe it is um, who's just not scared of anything. So they keep trying to prank her with these fake scares. And then they hit upon this idea to disguise themselves as monsters in the swamp. And uh-oh, wouldn't you know it? The monsters make their appearance. But wait, oh no, that's... But so-and-so's here with their mask off. And they said, hey, sorry, I couldn't you know, dress up as the monster. Well, if you're not, if those aren't you, then who is... Uh, uh? And it's a little double take. And I think that would have been fine in a short story. And I think it translates better to like the half hour Goosebumps episode. But when you're just reading your way through chapters of, oh, and then they pulled this prank and it looked like it might scare them, but it didn't. It's like that that's the actual 
conflict that we have to trudge through for the the whole story and that's not enthralling at all so i was like i thought it was like a you know kind of a wet fart <laughs> at the end <laughs> for the monsters to show up and basically just be the punchline i don't it didn't even strike me that they posed an actual threat you know to uh to the characters in the story it's just like oh there really are monsters in the swamp well let's get back on the bus the end uh and that's it so that i remember kind of sucking um and yeah just like some of those latter day goosebumps again you know the typical kicking post chicken chicken dumb as hell there's nothing at all terrifying about that no i do not have it <laughs> i'm I'm glad that i don't um yeah. well that's another one that like conceptually as an adult i can say like is the concept of <clears throat> turning into a chicken frightening yeah, I suppose so. It would be horrifying if it was actually happening to you, but it's not a thing you want to read about in fiction. Like, oh, my nose is all hard and beak-like now. Oh, I think my skin is growing feathers and it's really itchy. Especially when it's not... And I forget in that story, is is she like a human-sized chicken or does she just like transform into, you know, an average scale chicken? But if it's the latter case, um, you know, it's... Obviously, it wouldn't happen in a Goosebumps book because, you know, nobody can ever die or really be in harm of too much danger or violence. Um, but, you know, that could have certainly been a source of terror. And again, that's like another one like, uh, passable as a short story, maybe as a full length Goosebumps book. No, thank you. Um, but that one could have at least like maybe played into, well, you know what happens to chickens on the farm, right? <laughs> cut to you know a headless chicken running around you know in its death throes and it's like well we gotta make sure that doesn't happen to us which you know i feel like that could probably happen in maybe a modern day um uh scary book for kids but uh you know it didn't happen in goosebumps so we just had to work with what we got but that one chicken chicken um don't go to sleep just seemed dumb to me like the I don't know, just like the whole dream thing never really appealed to me and like horror stories. It's just like and I get why, you know, like some people might find it interesting or captivating. It's like, oh, man, you just can't escape the dream. You can never wake up. So then I'm like, right. So then how how do you what's 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 the ray of hope here? What's the you know, what what is creating the sense of suspense because we're just shuffling from one dream vision to the next. Uh, I don't, what, what, what does our hero have to go on here? How can he possibly extricate himself? And I guess he does eventually, but then it turns out he's asleep again. You know, it's like, Oh my God, just stop, just end it. But yeah, I guess you like that one, huh? The one that had the, um, was they like the time police or whatever? Yeah, I definitely remember that from the episode. Um, you know, they were basically like the men in black. I don't know if that those if those guys were in the book though. I can't sure it was because I remember because my mom always used to say like, you know, anytime you would say anything about anything, um, what would you say like rep reprimandery or whatever about like uh, I don't know what would be a good example. Um, well, I can't think of one, but she used that phrase a lot. She'd be like, what are you, the 
you know, stuff on the floor, police or whatever. <laughs> so when the phrase time police, like we're the time police was uttered seriously in that book, I do remember being like, isn't that like a joke that adults say about, I don't know. It was, it was like ripped from the headlines of my own life, but used in the wrong context where it was like, oh no, the time police. Ah, <laughs> uh, but I liked Overall, I like Don't Go to Sleep, but I think it was a concept mainly because of like, again, like Chicken Chicken is like body horror, which doesn't quite translate to uh, the idea of like monster books for kids. And Don't Go to Sleep is like existential terror in a way, like continually waking up in these different realities, not knowing what's real. But um, so I could see why a kid would get bored with that or not think that it was uh, visceral or threatening enough, but... I thought it was a really fascinating concept. And I think uh, in the second last book to the series, which is called I Live in Your Basement, basically does the same thing, probably a lot better. Um, so, but I, I still had like goodwill for Don't Go to Sleep because I thought it was like, of all of the things that R.L. Stein kind of experimented with over the series that didn't always necessarily pan out, I thought that that concept was one that was, uh, what number is this in the series? 54. Oh, so it was only seven books before I live in your basement. So, which I guess as a kid, uh, waiting for that in real time, that's like a really long time. So I, I guess I didn't really hold its feet to the fire in terms of him repeating himself in terms of that concept of like waking up in different realities and things keep getting, uh, changing. I don't know that I really have much of a point here. Um, but I like the book, uh, generally and i'm glad that he stuck with it again and kind of redid it with i live in your basement which i remember being really trippy and weird mm. in a really cool way um do you have more that you want to complain about or should we talk about like ones that we liked now no i'll just re- i'll just put a bow on that sentiment by saying that i actually did prefer i live in your basement to don't go to sleep i liked that one uh for the exact reasons you mentioned um just the fact that it it felt to me more unexpected um and like the you know the 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 tether to reality was always very thin um because i think like the kid in that story suffers a head injury of some kind so you yeah, he gets hit with a baseball bat i think on the baseball field yeah so you never really you're you know whereas the other book it's like oh well he's asleep we all know we all know this is a dream there it's like you're never quite sure if these things are really happening it's like maybe one of the only one of the few times at least in the original 62 that um rl stein dealt with what could possibly be coined as an unreliable narrator uh that that didn't always happen usually the you know the narrators were always very vanilla um they were just like I don't know why this phrase popped in my head, but cereal box heroes, like <laughs> just ki- just regular ass kids who ate cereal um, every morning. And the- there was really nothing to them except maybe like a quirk to give them some color. Um, but that was like, we really can't depend on this uh, protagonist to navigate us through this story in a uh, objective way. What was the book that you talked about after Be Careful What You Wish For? As another one that you didn't like early on in the series? Uh, not another. Oh, you can't scare me. 
You can't scare me. Okay, yes. What I was going to say about that one was um, because I do really lionize the first half of the series, uh, but I I remember feeling, yeah, that kind of, I wouldn't call it disappointment because I think there's kind of a time when you're like young and uncritical of things that it doesn't occur to you to dislike something, especially if it's like, I think I'm really into horror stuff. And these are horror, so there can't possibly be anything about them I don't like. But I do remember being, like, puzzled sometimes by certain story choices that R.L. Stein would make. So I do remember reading You Can't Scare Me and being like, it is puzzling to me that this entire book is just about these failed attempts to scare this girl. And then at the very end, they throw in this, uh, like, basically almost an epilogue with these mud monsters, even though they're so prominent on the cover. Hmm, that is strange. It must not be worth examining critically, though, because I don't know what that word means as a six-year-old. And then I guess the other thing to talk about would be, um, well, we talked about the ones we didn't like so much. Uh, What were some of your favorites or the ones that really um, stuck with you over the years? And do you think if you were to, I haven't reread the majority of these books since they were published in the 90s, but do you think that maybe if you were to reread it now, you would have a different perspective on which ones are your favorites? Because I, I had that with uh, the Mummy's Tomb one, where I was rereading it, and I was like, I don't remember liking this much, much as a kid because nothing happened. But reading as an adult, the things that appeal to me now in stories are like, well, I like the characters, I like the chemistry that the characters have with each other. I like the adventure aspect of it, which was something I was not really looking for. Um, too much as a kid when I read it. Uh, so that's an example. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there were definitely some that I recall very fondly. And some of them I do feel like if I were to reread them, I would have much the same attraction to them. I just grabbed one from the pile, which is number 24, which is Phantom of the Auditorium. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways you know, regardless of what, well, maybe not regardless, but um, kind of independent of whatever were to, whatever were to happen in this book, whatever were to happen in this story, the Phantom in general as a character is just one that's kind of like linked to me in a lot of ways, uh, because it was through the depiction of that character on the Hysteria cartoon show that first gave me the nudge to investigate the universal monster movies so that's what led me to you know like the claude rains version and then it was just a landslide after that um and then this hadn't happened by this time in my life um this this next story or anecdote whatever um but the phantom of the opera was also my first musical uh, stage show that i ever saw and once again, like at that time, it was like a reverberation of the way it instilled a passion for like horror stories in me when I was younger. That instilled a passion in me for theater, um, musical and otherwise, and put me on the path to, you know, definitely like getting involved in drama and theater uh, in my high school years. So I'm I'm always kind of attracted to that character, that archetype in general. But I remember when I reading this um reading this book, yeah, it must have been, you know, third grade, um, just the notion of a school play being put on and it being like 
like a spooky story, just the mecha- the literal mechanics of that, you know, for however small detail is actually, and however small detail is described in the book, it was just so fascinating to me. Like, wow, there are elementary age kids who are putting on a play. Because even at that young age, I had you know, intimations of liking that kind of thing because I restaged all the Universal Monster movies on home video back at home. Uh, So I just kind of already liked that thing. Um, And I just always loved the figure that the character of the Phantom cuts, you know, with the mask and the cape. And on the cover here, he's got some very, uh, he's sporting some very nice, Presumably opera gloves, but they look like they could be like the gloves you wear to drive your car or play tennis. Uh, you know, he, he actually looks like he's just in the midst yeah, of a swing. All of those things. Yes, I play tennis while I'm driving, wearing gloves, um, just for show. Uh, but I, I was just fascinated by those little mechanics in this story. Like, oh, they're putting on a play, but it has a cursed history to it. And it involves the disappearance of a student. The last time that the school attempted to put on this play. And is that student still lurking around the auditorium? <laughs> Which seems silly to say. Because um, our auditorium, when I was in, I assume lots of elementary schools are like this. But your stage is in the cafeteria. <laughs> and the cafeteria does not usually impart a particularly classic or theatrical air to it it usually imparts the air of like stale milk cartons (laughs) and uh you know yelling kids but um we had an actual auditorium with a stage so well i guess that's what happens when you live in the privileged part of town uh yeah but uh no i remember really really enjoying this um and like, yeah, there's that weird segment where they think they have found the Phantom, but it's just like some creepy janitor um, who lives in the school and he's eating cereal um, like that just kind of felt like, ooh, like a like a thrill of sorts. Like, oh, man, they're going up against this creepy Phantom guy. But wait, is that really him or does the Phantom lurk elsewhere? And then the twist to this one is genuinely good, I think. Um, Can't say I even yeah, it's good. It it gives you a little chill as opposed to like, haha, wink, wink. You know, wasn't that funny? Um, this one, this one ends on a, a good chilling twist. So my vote goes to what Phantom. Do we get to hear it? No, read the book. Just kidding. It turns out that uh, the new kid in school who joins uh, the the heroine who's playing, uh, I think. The character in the play is Asmerelda as opposed to Christine. Uh, the girl who's the main character who's playing Asmerelda, uh, her best friend is the one who's slated to play the Phantom. Um, but then events occur that lead to that not being the case. Uh, but there's a new kid in school. I think his name is Brian. He joins their group and he kind of like tags along with them in their investigations and whatnot. But then at the very end, after the final curtain has been drawn and um, the girl playing Esmeralda, she like takes the mask off the phantom and that drives him back like, no, no, why did you do it? And he like falls through a hole in the stage and he's never heard from again. But everybody, you know, all the audience members think, oh, wow, what a great show. Yay. Um, When her best friend, who was supposed to be playing the phantom, 
you know, recovers, uh, they end up going to their lockers and inside her lockers is an old yearbook from like the 1930s when, you know, the year that this play was last mounted at the school and they look through the yearbook and they find the picture of the kid who was playing the, who was slated to play the Phantom back then. And it turns out it was Brian. So yeah, that's like a pretty good twist that not all the Goosebumps books ended on. I feel like that wasn't too cheesy or too, you know, ha ha, squeak, squeak. That one was pretty good. So what about you? Anything here in the pile that stirs something in your heart? In the pile. In the pile. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I remember liking Phantom of the Auditorium because it kind of harkened back to, I think even as a kid, I was really into like the horror of like old things, like vintage stuff. And that's not something that you run across too much in Goosebumps. It is a very, I mean, I guess it's vintage from today's perspective, but it was very dedicated to being modern and like trying to reflect the lives of real kids, which is something that I think filmmakers and writers have almost completely given up on (laughs) because everybody's just so sick of like, how do I deal with social media in this? I don't want to, you know, so I feel like everything is like a period piece or like a timeless era that kind of like harkens back to uh, a previous decade, like when you know the author grew up or whatever. Um, can't all be knives out. Yeah, and I think I would have kind of preferred that maybe in some cases, because um, like the yeah, like the old spooky haunted house, or well, I guess there were some of those in Goosebumps, but I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I feel like the Phantom of the Opera is such a Harkening back to like this period piece, even though they don't call it the Phantom of the Opera. I don't remember the details of the, it's probably like a clear analog, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. And so I think I just thought it was cool because it's like, oh, it's like old timey. Uh, So I remember liking that. And then there was a guy named Zeke and I was like, what kind of a name is Zeke? But, uh, you know, people in this world have that name. Um, In terms of my favorites... It's funny because I just said uh, I didn't like the adventure aspect of whatever one I was talking about. Mummy's Tomb. Mummy's Tomb as a kid. But my favorite was Deep Trouble, which is also way more of an adventure story than a horror story. Mm -hmm. And it also commits the crime of having a cover that is not at all represented in the book except for a very brief moment. Um, and you can't scare me. It was at the very end in deep trouble. It's probably even worse because it's like at the very beginning is the boy, Billy deep, I think is his name is like swimming in the, (laughs) yeah, it's like goodwill hunting, you know, deep trouble. Uh, he, he like starts, or he's like being circled by a shark in the water and it's like in like the opening chapter or whatever. So if you really got sold on this book based on the cover, which is a hammerhead shark, um, and the tagline is just when you thought it was safe, dot, 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 like just wholesale ripping off Jaws 2's tagline, um, you would have been really disappointed because the rest of the story is about them discovering a mermaid. But uh, something that I said in the Harvey Shank episode was like, you know, when you're a young boy, there was not a lot of like... uh, I don't know. Is it flirtation when you're that age? There's not a lot of like romantic quote unquote elements in Goosebumps book. It's usually like, even if there's a male and a female character who are not related, it's still usually totally platonic, but there were a couple books that kind of tapped into 
that aspect a little bit. And I remember um, Billy's relationship with this mermaid, who is the mermaid version of a you know twelve year old girl or whatever, is very. Uh, there's an element of yeah that like playful fr- flirtation to it that I think I was kind of into as a kid. I Oh, she doesn't talk. Oh. Uh, she's a, you know, Charlie Chaplin type character. Oh, okay. Charlie Chaplin is a mermaid. There's another one. Yeah. Yet another one of those Charlie Chaplin is a mermaid books. How many do we have to endure before they realize nobody wants that? <laughs> um, but, uh, and then, yeah, the horror element comes in because there is some, like, rival. I don't remember what they, they want the mermaid for, like, you know immoral purposes maybe to experiment on her or something so the book is about like you know saving her and i was like i hope someday i am a boy who gets to save a girl (laughs) uh do i have anything else to say about that one i don't think so do you have anything else to say about that one uh no i would say just uh echoing everything you said about um yeah disappointing going from being set up for one kind of adventure and getting another i remember still being intrigued though like huh this is taking a different path than i thought it would um and um you know for what it's worth rl stein from what i recall is not bad at um at more adventure spiced stories um because you know he usually relies on some well-worn tropes just kind of like he did in curse of the mummy's tomb with like the spikes and the tar pits and things like that and and i do like um i i, I do like uh a modicum of adventure in my horror stories i i find them fun when uh, they're able to pull both of those vibes off. That one definitely airs more on the side of adventure, but I remember being a fun read. It almost kind of reads like a, more like a pulpy, like an old school pulpy story. Yeah. Yeah. Like a men's adventure, a boy's adventure (laughs) type deal. 100%. Um, well, how about underrated and overrated? Uh, I have a real doozy for overrated. Um, I'm going to say the entire Night of the Living Dummy series <gasps> is overrated. I never cared about Slappy. I always thought he was super annoying. Slappy and Monster Blood are like the two aspects of the original Goosebumps series that became like emblematic yeah. of the series as a whole and things that R.L. Stein kept coming back to. And I was really bored by both of them. What do you think? Uh, I will agree with Monster Blood, um, just because, you know... Yeah, I guess we know your whole thing about dummies already. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dummy fear. Um, So they had a little bit more resonance for me. I think also uh, where maybe Slappy registered with other folks and made him more endearing or more popular was the fact that he had, even though it was pretty one-note... you know, everything in Goosebumps, I guess, is pretty one note. But uh, he he had personality to him. He had, like, sass. Um, you know, he was like an insult comic. So if you were into that kind of thing, you know, you looked forward to Slappy's takedowns. I think I remember, um, boy, oh, boy, I think it was the uh, holiday edition of the Pog Collector's Manual that I used to have, there was a collector's manual for Goosebumps Pogs specifically, and this one was a holiday edition for no discernible reason. That's interesting. Yeah, I had the 
regular one, but I do not remember there being a holiday one. Yeah, no reason whatsoever. Um, just, you know, marketing, consumerism, capitalism, all that good stuff. Um, just to sell kids something else. But uh, I think that book actually included like uh, a list of Slappy's best takedowns. <laughs> so, I mean, that kind, of, that kind of tells you right there, like what his defining characteristic was outside of like demanding everybody's souls that he came into contact to. He really didn't care. He just wanted souls. Uh, but when he wasn't doing that, he was just like, Talking about how fat people's butts were, <laughs> you know, vomiting on people. Um, is that your head or is your neck blowing a bubble? Yep, yep, stuff like that. Like, oh, you're so big, you need your own zip code. Right, 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 right. You know, just like stuff that I feel like even if you were performing in vaudeville back in like the 30s or whatever, would get like booed off stage. Like, yeah, it's just like old hacky crap. Yeah, the dregs of ventriloquist humor, which I'm not sure that there's. Um, I'm not sure that there's a high watermark of ventriloquist humor. Even by that standard, these were pretty bad. <laughs> so um, in any case, yeah, I thought the Monster Blood books were, were pretty boring, though. <sighs> you know, because um, we talked th- about this before, like my attitude towards like Atomic Age horrors versus uh, Gothic horrors. Um, not to say that there is anything specifically atomic age about monster blood. In fact, it it actually has supernatural origins in the first book. Like it's tied to like witchcraft. Sure, whatever, go figure. Um, but I mean, I guess we've just been um, we've just been trained to view any kind of flesh eating amoeba to see it through the lens of atomic age horrors because of like the blob and things like that you know it's it's like oh it's you know always like something created in a lab or an alien being from space so even though as i said like the first book establishes that it has supernatural oranges it's like i don't know you're not you're not fooling me supernatural oranges oranges supernatural oranges um here Spose book almost. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on my. Mm, I was gonna say Tangerine Sun, but that didn't go. Well, if you knew this, if you knew I Supernatural. Like, well, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna tie it into Supernatural, the show, but I was gonna make oh, an orange joke, and you, it. you saw how well that went. Yeah. It's one of those things that has a rabid fandom that I'm almost certain I would hate. Uh, the first five seasons are pretty bomb, um, which means good. Uh, but I, yeah, you're welcome. I took, uh, yeah, I lost utter faith in it after that point because it, and it would have ended perfectly after its fifth season. Um, but you know, kind of like goosebumps, it's like, well, this thing is a thing that people still like and it's still making a ton of money. So why stop? Sure. Fine. Go ahead. But I'm, I'm no, I'm, tearing this badge off my lapel as we speak goodbye you will be doing it without me um but anyway monster blood always still felt like it carried the tinge of um of atomic age horrors because the second one like cuddles the hamster eats the monster blood and then cuddles becomes like a giant hamster so that's basically like any atomic age monster movie you've seen like tarantula or you know the deadly mantis and then even the third one especially evan somehow i still know that kid's name that really says a lot about me i think evan um 
somehow ingests the monster blood himself and then he grows to huge proportions and i remember like the army getting called out and it's like any it's like clearly hearkening when you talk about hearkening back this was clearly hearkening back to like the atomic age horror movies you know where there's the military presence and i'm like uh i just don't care it's a giant kid running around the city i don't care um, so yeah, I was never enamored with Monster Blood. I do remember, and I know we said, uh, we'll, we'll probably not get into the TV show that much, but I will say that that was actually, um, one of my favorite episodes though, as a kid, um, was the, uh, the so-called sequel, their sequel to Monster Blood, which was called More Monster Blood, which takes place on the airplane. I thought that was a lot of fun because I, I like those kind of tense, uh, claustrophobic scenarios or urge, you know, urgent time scenarios where people kind of have to fight their way out of something or to something, and it can only happen within this limited time frame. So I always, <laughs> I always like things like that. But yeah, the books I never enjoyed, and if I did read Monster Blood Four, the much coveted Monster Blood Four, I don't remember it, and I don't care if if I did. Um, but yeah, Slappy will always have a place in my in my wooden heart for reasons I've previously explained. Yeah, I don't remember that. Uh, I don't think I watched that because I gave up on Goosebumps the series early ish because it came out like I think too late in the cycle for me to care about it anymore. When I was already turned off of the books, and then this like low production value series with like bad child acting, it, like it didn't hold my attention for that long. Um, and I got very snobby when I would ask people, like, do you read Goosebumps? And they were like, I like the show. And I was like, you're a moron. <laughs> do not speak to me. Um, and then the other one was, okay, we just said, did you have any overrated picks besides the two that I said? Overrated? I don't, th- I mean, I'm, I got some of the books out here splay down in front of us i don't think there was anything that everybody liked that i didn't like because like i said i was i was a dyed in the wolf fan so I, I i love the haunted mask stories um i'm trying to think of like what the other iconic ones i remember really enjoying you know one day at Horrorland. um i'm trying to like think of all the ones you that had uh illustrated characters for that you'd see on all the merchandise so you'd always see the mummy you'd always see the scarecrow i love i love scarecrow walks at midnight um good vibes good vibes all around both book and tv episode i thought they did a pretty good job with that um let's see who else would you see pictures of oh i don't know if people rate this one actually high but again i'm just going off of what would i always see like merchant you know what would i always see splayed across merchandise I could not give, in the words of Matt Berry from What We Do in the Shadows, I could not give a tinker's fig for how I got my shrunken head. Oh, that was one of the ones I was going to say for underrated. Uh, you just said you don't like voodoo stuff, though. I don't think shrunken heads is voodoo, is it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm... A f- Excuse me if I'm like horrendously conflating cultures and, uh, you know, practices, but uh, I think at least as a kid stuff that was marketed to kids like this was, I think the two always felt like to me inextricably linked. There was voodoo. And then, yeah, if you practice voodoo shrunken heads were kind of part and parcel with that, along with like the voodoo dolls. But yeah, I guess that's true. I just don't remember 
any of the other elements in the book having to do specifically with any sort of, yeah, practice like that. I'm sure it's probably a terribly problematic book from <laughs> today's perspective, but I liked it because, again, it was another adventure one, uh, right. which for some reason those really resonated with me, even though I was ostensibly reading these to be a, hor- a budding horror fan, yeah. Um, but, uh, well, underrated or maybe not underrated or so much as just like you don't hear anybody talk about them. Um Another one for me is Ghost Beach. I feel like nobody really, I don't know, like it's a ghost one, but I feel like all of the other ghost books in the series, like The Ghost Next Door or, uh, well, maybe not Ghost Camp, but Curse of Camp Cold Lake is one that people like. I feel like they all get a lot more spoken about than Ghost Beach. And I remember thinking that it had a lot of really fun, like, twists and turns it takes place on it's like a coastal thing which is always resonates with me um it felt like almost like mr james or something before i knew who that was but like this like gray coastal city where we have to worry about these ghosts and then there's like the old man in the cave and it's like the kids are like he's the ghost and the guy's like no they're the ghosts um yeah i remember really liking that one this was this was actually one uh my whole thing with goosebumps got started you know like i always knew about the series and i feel like i probably mentioned this in that first episode on mummy's tomb um but it was actually ghost beach along with the revenge of the lawn gnomes that served as my official gateway because those were two that i borrowed from the public library intent to basically i don't know how well i was reading at that time but it wasn't well enough to uh, seamlessly get myself through a Goosebumps book. But I sat down one summer day or over the course of a couple summer days and I basically forced my way through these books because I was so adamant that I wanted to read this series because I like spooky stuff. I wanted to read the spooky series that everybody's talking about. So I I forced myself through those. Um, And Revenge of the Lawn Gnomes is fine for what it is. It, might as well basically be, you know, another Night of the Living Dummy minus the insults. Yeah, that, one, that was like a one-two punch of like Camp Jelly Jam oh, yeah. and then Revenge of the Lawn Gnomes where I was just like, what happened to this series? <laughs> and you're only like 33, 34. It's like, oh, it's just fallen such a far away. It's like, boy, you had no idea what was in store for you. Once. Once we got into the 50s, especially. Um, but it yeah. was the biggest disappointment because by the time those bad ones rolled around from later in the series, I was already checked out enough to be like, there's nowhere to, there's no height to fall from anymore. Right. But you're right. Ghost Beach does have a, I would say, um, you know, Ghost Next Door is kind of like a somber tale, um, especially if you know, like the trajectory of, uh, you know, what ends up happening at the climax. That one's kind of a somber one. Ghost Beach, I feel like, you know, the ghost is kind of like a gimmick in all the other ones. Like, oh, it's this spooky thing, you know, in Curse of Camp Cole Lake. Oh, it's the spooky camp lore, this girl that drowned or whatever it is. I don't even remember. Um, (laughs) And then Ghost Camp, I don't even know. I don't remember what the hell the deal was with Ghost Camp. Like, it's a camp for ghosts. It, the ki- the kids who go there die or disappear, and they t- end up turning into ghosts. I have no freaking clue. Well, it's a camp for ghosts. Did you ever see that uh, 
video clip of Tobey Maguire being asked about like, so what is Boss Baby about? And he clearly, I don't know if he just has no memory of, of doing a voice for that movie or, or if it's too long after he recorded it. But his, he's like basically giving the answer that you would give in school when you got like called upon to like do your book report or whatever. He's like, well, it's about a baby. And he's the boss. <laughs> Good job, Toby. Yeah, yeah I guess that's, that's all we got to say what about Ghost, Ghost Camp. camp about? Well, it's a camp for ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Are they ghosts who are camping or are they campers who became ghosts to refer back to like South Park's uh, corn Halloween special? Are they ghost pirates or are they pirate ghosts? Are they ghosts that made the independent decision to become pirates in the afterlife? Or were they pirates who died and became ghosts? Don't know. Don't care in this case. Um, but yeah, so they were kind of like goofy, gimmicky stuff there. I feel like Ghost Speech, though, has a genuinely, insofar as like a Goosebumps book can or did, um, I feel like that one is genuinely has a haunted quality to it. And maybe it's just the coastal town that it takes place in. I think the way the story starts, like the, it's a brother and sister. I think the girl is doing like gravestone etchings. So that, that that immediately already sets the tone for like, this is, you know, like it's, it's uh, like death is in the air already from the get go. Uh, um, Which is an atmosphere that I think Stein maybe exploited a little bit more in Fear Street, mm. but you don't see it so much in Goosebumps. Yeah, so I think that's maybe why... Because of that, like, uh, I don't know, that, like, determination to be modern that I was talking about earlier, whereas this feels a little bit, like I said, M.R. James, like, it feels more like a classic, yeah. misty, foggy ghost story. And speaking of eerie endings, this one has a pretty damn eerie ending, too. Um, I, I actually... Yeah. Where they may actually just be dead yeah. <laughs> after the next sentence or whatever. Yeah, my goodness. Um, I reread it just a f- handful of years ago, and I was like, man, that, that hits pretty much the same as when I read it as a kid. But, you know, being a dumb kid, I I, I preferred the, you know, the dumb lawn gnomes over ghost speech <laughs> for whatever reason. What a yeah. terrible decision. Yep. So there you have it. Um, any particular memories since we're on the topic of ghosts of a uh, ghost next door? I kind of put my two cents in a little bit. Um, well, I was going to ask you earlier and then I was like, well, I don't know if I have an actual good answer because I was going to ask you like, what's the best twist ending of the series? And my first thought of course was the girl who cried monster. And I was like, but that's what everybody says is the best twist ending. So if I were to pick one besides that, I would probably say the ghost next door. I do remember that like blowing my mind, man. Like, I thought this other guy was the ghost, but then he's Shyamalanda's before Shyamalanda, Shyamalanda's. Know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and Shyamalan, interestingly enough, got stole that twist from Are You Afraid of the Dark? So. Yeah, so was that like, did he publicly acknowledge that? Because I've always heard that. He did. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Well, you know what? I was going to say good for him. I guess good on him for, you know, citing his sources after the fact, though. Um, Yeah. Whatever brings more reverence to Are You Afraid of the Dark, though, I'm okay with it at the end of the day. So thanks for pointing everybody in that direction, Mr. Shyamalan. 
but that's all my feeling. I do remember being confused because at the end she realizes that her purpose of coming back as a ghost was to save the boy from the fire. Yeah. And I remember being confused because like, and again, at the time I thought it was just me not being literate enough to understand. But then as I got older and read more R.L. Stein, I was like, no, he's just kind of bad at like the geography or like the blocking of a scene sometimes because he's like trapped behind a wall of fire. And I feel like she just like pulls him forward and they go out the house and I'm like, oh, so did he just go right through the flames or did she have some kind of like magical aura because she was supernatural that like protected him? You know, it's it's not really explained at all. It's just basically like, you know, come on. And he's like, OK, I saved you. Yay. Uh, uh, so, I have one more. Did you say oh, your underrated pick yet? Um, I have one more that I can I haven't said any underrated, actually. I only commented on well, the fact that I don't think, yeah, I have any other overrated ones. Uh, just running through, like, the merchandising illustrations in my mind. I think that covers everybody. This is just a random question that I'm going to lob right in the middle of our conversation, um, like a grenade. Okay. I've, and I don't expect to answer. I, I do not even want an answer now. I'm just going to put this out there into the universe. But I'm very curious where Curly came from. I always wanted to know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Because I remember there was like a, you know, fake interview with him in one thing in some document I had from the fan club. And he made some reference to like, you know, I've never actually been in a Goosebumps book, but I have been on many of the covers. And I was like, what does that mean? No, he hasn't. I don't know if they were maybe trying to make a joke about the say cheese and die skeletons or something. Well, he... Well, he was the featured uh, character, I guess you'd say, on all the uh, Tales to Give You Goosebumps covers. He was on all of those. On all of those. Um, but yeah, he was merchandised up the yin-yang. Um, so I, that, I always wonder, like, that seems very strange. Somebody, you know, a figure that has no actual ties to any of the books, except these antho- these collections, which in comparison, in comparison to the other books, nobody really knows. <laughs> Let's just use him as our mascot. I guess, I don't know. I guess maybe Stein and Jacobus really liked him, and they're like, yeah, sure, why not? Well, speaking of Pogs, did you have the Curly Slammer? No. In fact, that book, that collector's manual, was the only Pog-related merchandise I owned, and it just fell into my hands as like a random Goodwill find. I, I never had... I remember... Um, yeah, you were probably a little too. It was probably before your time a little bit. It was. It was. I think my uh, an older friend of mine had some pogs, maybe somewhere Goosebumps related. But um, I remember like coming across his cache of pogs at some point. But I don't think I ever really knew what they were. I might have just looked at them and just kind of marveled at the art. But I never realized that there was a game <laughs> or an act, if you want to call it, yeah. attributed to those. It's just like, oh, these are cool little things to look at. I mean, that was the main purpose. The game, for anybody who was doesn't remember the Pog craze of the you know early to mid-1990s, Pogs were just these little like cardboard circles with artwork on them. And then there was a big thick one that was either like really thick plastic or metal called a Slammer. And basically the whole game was just, uh, um, I guess, in order to encourage the tradeability and the, this continuing circulation that would make people want to collect more and more was you would just stack up all the pogs, you would hit it with the slammer, and then whichever ones landed on the ground face down were like yours to keep now. Good game. Yeah. Good game. 
All right. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I have anything else that was overrated. Uh, I just hit upon Curly because, of course, well, he we was. Moved on to underrated. Yeah. All right. Fine. And it looks like you pulled one out that um, makes my list anyway. So take it over. Oh, I was just gonna say, Beast from the East is one that I really liked as a kid. Yeah. Get a whole lot of um, love. I feel like. And it's, again, speaking of ones that are more of a, another genre than horror, The Beast from the East is really more of like a fantasy, mm-hmm. which I guess he did sometimes, like with How I Learned to Fly, didn't have like any scary elements in it whatsoever. But uh, usually I found them boring. <laughs> but Beast from the East, I remember liking. No, I enjoyed it a lot, too, um, just because it's like, wow, it... it and I think at this point we've re- referenced this on the show before. And if you want to do your own homework, you can dig into it. But this was definitely at the point. Um, so the story goes, if you can, you know, get a straight story from all the uh, legal happenings that came about in the mid to late 90s. Um, by this point in the series, R.L. Stein basically had a had some uh, ghost writers on his contact sheet that he would tap and they wouldn't write the books for him, but they would basically provide outlines uh, that he would then use to flesh out his own Goosebumps manuscripts that he would then submit as his own. Whatever, um, you know, I don't I don't know the full story. Who knows if any of us will, but that is how the story goes. So the reason I bring that up was because I was tempted to say that, oh, you know, this is a really refreshing book because, you know, this is what it looks like when R.L. Stein just allows his imagination free reign to go into uncharted territory and just kind of allow it to be unfettered. But then I stopped myself and I was like, well, it really wasn't his imagination <laughs> that much by this point. If, you know, there's any truth to these stories, which in all likelihood, it does seem like that's the case. Because when you think about it, there was no conceivable way for any one person to be producing books at this um, capacity. He was basically James Pattersoning before James Pattersoning. <laughs> and I'm sure there were and I'm sure there were people before him who did that. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case with Babysitter's Club um, possibly yeah, I even animal. Say, I, I had a, a article just pop up in my feed this morning um, about like, you know, ex- I didn't read the whole thing, but it was basically about, yeah, like the practice of uh, ghostwriting and how like Francine Pascal, who wrote Sweet Valley High, basically just came up with a concept and wrote like uh, possibly a series Bible, but maybe not even that much, maybe just like an outline or a a pitching the idea and then like never intended to write a single word of the actual series and still got her name on every single book in the whole thing. So I think it was just like the ethics of this kind of thing were not really being considered quite so much at that time. Um, But the article that I read did point out that Kay Applegate was like uh, one of the only authors who like both acknowledged in the manuscript because she would put like a little like thank you to blankety blank whoever the ghostwriter was for their preparation of this manuscript and I also remember her acknowledging in interviews like yeah uh, entries from you know here onward are all uh, ghostwriters we just do like the outline at this point which at the time I was disappointed but um, now that I'm an adult and I understand like the pressure of having to keep up a series going uh, I'm like well you know, more power to her for at least acknowledging, like, yeah, full yeah. disclosure. Didn't have anything to do with this one except for the outline. True enough. Uh, I remember, you know, hearing intimations of that. Even, a, you know, not 
too, it was not too many years ago that I found this out, but it still broke my heart a little bit just because as a kid, you know, that's all you have to go by is the name on the cover and it, you know, the realities and the pressures, as you say, of um, producing this massive amount of content, you know, were of course not on my mind. Um, so it seemed conceivable to me, however far out of my own reach as it was as a budding scribe, um, that one man could do it all. One man could write these stories. His imagination and his creative faculties are just so great and at such a height that he's whipping these babies out, you know, month after month. Um, so, but in any case, um, going back to Beast from the East, I really remember, like, even as a kid, reading it and just enjoying it um, because I love, um, I love any kind of story that deals with like uh, games or obstacles where there's like a set of rules, um, which is interesting because I'm not terribly fond of like world building in a sense, but I, I find you can see the face that he made when he said that world building, <laughs> like it was the most execrable <laughs> subject in the entire world. Well, I just hate getting mired in it, um, which of course, you know, some authors pull off better than others, but and you know, though I read a lot of YA books where it's like, <laughs> They were so concerned with like, and A, they're doing it badly, and B, they're like so concerned with world building that like the characters and the plot completely just go to the wayside. So I guess it's like any other kind of narrative element where it's not actually the narrative element that I have a beef with. It's when people do it badly, um, which is what pretty much everything comes down to. Um, world building really well. Who? Say, uh, is I think Joe Hill. Um, I remember this particularly, I kind of was always a little mixed on his novels, but his short stories, I feel like he was really good at like having just like some kind of throwaway line in the prose about like, I don't know, it like suggested the possibility of this entire other short story that you're not even reading. And it was just thrown in there as a detail. So I like that kind of stuff. Well, I will match your Joe Hill with a favorite author of mine, uh, Nathan Ballingrud, who does an amazing job of that as well. And I actually just uh, gave Eric some of his books to borrow so that he could appreciate it as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I like that kind of thing a lot more than, well, before we can proceed any further with the story, allow us to explain the laws of this land in which we live. No, shut up. Keep going. Um yeah, but anyway, uh, Beast from the East is great fun. Um, the idea that they're playing this um, uh, complicated form of tag, and it's in this like fantastical, like almost Alice in Wonderland world, um, just just makes it a delight. So yeah, definitely yeah. underrated. The cover. I'll say this again when we do our ranking of the book titles, but I always felt like the cover is like evil Doctor Seuss or something. <laughs> yeah. I can definitely see that, uh, or what are they called in the Lorax, the Barbalutes. Barbalute suits. Barbalute suits. Yeah, it looks like a big, mean, old Barbalute. And I only know that because of the song from the animated Lorax from the 70s. All right, you're welcome. Uh, You know what? I will say the next one was another one that would probably strike me as intensely boring these days. And it's a surprise that um, it didn't as a kid when I read it. But uh, Legend of the Lost Legend which I think is the one that comes right after Beast from the East. This is 43. Is that 40? Oh, whoops. Anyway, um, so that's after How to Kill a Monster, I think. Um, Legend of the Lost Legend. I don't remember a lot of the details 
from it. But I remember that one felt like it was more entrenched in just like a folklore, kind of like mythic trappings. And that was also a new vibe, a new feeling for Goosebumps because everything was just so, like you said, so modern, so fiercely modern, uh, so fiercely like candy coated. And some of the other ones, it's like monster, you know, uh, monster movie matinee fair kind of stuff. But uh, Legend of the Lost Legend is more mythic in tone. I couldn't even tell you what the main problem was. Uh, I think like the characters are searching for a treasure. Um, keep jumping ahead because I was going to ask another. My final question about the OG series was going to be, um, what is the book of the OG series that you remember the least? <laughs> and I was going to say Legend of the Lost Legend because I like every other book in the series. I think I could at least tell you like a moment a plot beat, some kind of line of dialogue, like some kind of association that I had with it. Legend of the Lost Legend has become, in my brain, a lost legend unto itself. I remember not a single detail. I could not tell you a single thing that happens in this book. Uh, it just completely vanished from my memory, which maybe means that it's not as bad as something like, you know, Egg Monsters from Mars or whatever. But, but um. Yeah, so I guess it seems stupid for me to say, oh, this is a really underrated one, um, while at the same time saying, I don't know what happens in it. <laughs> I don't remember. Um, but just, I, I guess it had a similar quality of sorts to um, I Live in Your Basement to me, where it just felt like I can't I can't get a bead on like what the actual supernatural threat is. Like It's no one thing. So it feels like anything can happen in this story. So it just kind of kept me on my toes, I remember feeling. Um, the twist is kind of lame. Well, at the same time, like, being like... <laughs> they find the... What is this? I'm reading the back now. The dad is searching for an ancient manuscript called The Lost Legend. When they finally find it, they're like, oh, we've got it. And they're studying it. And then somebody looks up and looks around and they say, wait a minute, guys, we're lost. Which I don't know if like, are they in a totally, are they in a totally different realm than, you know, the earth that they just were, or are they literally just lost in the woods? Uh, I don't think any clarification is provided. So it's like, yeah, that's pretty dumb. Um, but anyway, so yeah, underrated and also completely forgotten. <laughs> well, but I mean, remembering the feeling that you had about it is something. Yeah. Like, there's probably a lot of books that I could look at and be like, I remember liking that even though I couldn't really tell you that much about it. Cause, or like even movies. Like, uh, I, it would be a boring story, so I won't spend time trying to remember. But the other day I was like thinking about like, something that I watched in the October challenge a couple of years ago. And I was like, I remember nothing about that movie, but I liked it. But legend of the lost legend is, I don't even remember having any kind of a feeling about it. Mm. <laughs> it just, you know, for sure that you read it. Though. I know I read it. Cause I read all of the original ones and I remember sure. the cover. Um, yeah. Outside of that, like it's just all completely gone. Mm. Might warrant a reread here on the podcast at some point, right. even though we're, you know, we're, we're really trying to navigate <laughs> and expose people to all the other cool creepy books that were released but you know like i said in the beginning goosebumps is just like the north star we keep we keep 
falling under its pole. So there you go. Another one. It's difficult to say in this day and age what a consensus is about anything because everything is either everything is hot take. I feel like so yeah. it's like who knows what the original take was if everything is a response to that. But I feel like a shocker on Shock Street, in my mind, seems to be regarded as either unnotable or bad. Hmm. But I remember liking it, and I think it's just because it was about like the production of a of movies, and I was really into movies at that time. So I was like, I don't know, that was cool. I remember liking it because it takes place at a theme park, and uh, being a Florida kid and having a, a fair bit of exposure to theme parks, I greatly enjoyed it for that reason. I as as um as kind of lame or limp as they might be. That's also the same reason that, um, one of the reasons that I really enjoyed one day at Horrorland. Um, I like hearing about fictional rides. Um, for as like, like I said, as lame or half hearted as they might be like in one day at Horrorland, it's like, Oh, you know, like some of them are pretty cool. Like the, the coffin river rapid ride. It's like, that's neat. Uh, but others are just like the hall of mirrors and it's like, Oh, okay. Well not as cool, but I appreciate the effort. Um, that's the kind of world building that I do like when it has to do with theme parks (laughs) and the fictional rides that might reside there. Uh, so I remember liking shocker on shock street for that reason. And and also enjoying those elements of one day at Horrorland. All right. Did you have an answer for, um, are there any books that you're just like completely bereft of any detail Uh, whatsoever? Ones that are here, honestly, for as much as I knock them, I really don't remember, perhaps, thankfully, gratefully, I don't remember all that much about, like, Chicken Chicken or yeah. or how I learned to fly. Like, I have no idea. How did he learn to fly? Why was he learning to fly? What did he encounter when he flew? <laughs> I have no memory of any of that. And uh, I'm looking through the list of all the titles and trying to think of, um, can I come up with any other questions? Uh <laughs> A Night in Terror Tower is another one that I feel like people don't talk about that I remember liking a lot. Oh, and R.L. Stein said that his least favorite book of the, at least original series, I don't know if this is like all-encompassing for all subsequent series also, he often talks about like how his least favorite was The Barking Ghost. Um, which is funny because I, again, the horror at Camp Jelly Jam was the next one after that. So I think I still had enough goodwill for the series at that point to include Barking Ghost as like one of the classics of the first half. Um, and then... Hmm. Honestly... I guess I'm probably if that was out of least, ideas. I don't know. If that was his favorite, I was just looking at like the other... Um, some of the other entries close by it. Um, he felt that way about Barking Ghost, but he didn't feel that way from... It came from beneath the sink. <laughs> Yeah. The the I mean I guess that I guess you know maybe, maybe that like one's go- maybe he just had one where he just checked out yeah. so there's like oh there's worse books but the one I remember <laughs> being the most disappointed by was the Barking Ghost yeah um, which is also one that I don't super remember I think it helps that they made it into a TV series yeah because I really remember that by some of the so that there was like a tree where they like turned into dogs or something yeah, yeah that's all I remember of that one brother gets turned into a chipmunk at the end good times <laughs> right. yep. that's the twist 
That's the twist. Well, we said best twist, or at least I did. Do you remember any of the twists that you were like, ugh, that's the worst? Oh, that's the worst? Uh, Legend of the Lost Legend, for, you know, in its own way, was pretty bad. Um, I feel like there are some of them that didn't really have a twist. That they just kind of ended on a whamp whamp note. Which I guess Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, that was early enough to not maybe feel the need to have a twist. Because it ended with, like, what, the fake-out scare? Again, something about bandages. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Um, and it was just more like a joke, like, oh boy, you know, I'll never do that again. Or, you know, boy, have we had a crazy day kind of a thing. So not all of them ended with twists properly. Um, I feel like that's kind of a. I actually really like that one, but I feel like it's kind of controversial. In in that it's you know kind of a goofy concept, sure, but it's a goofy concept that's true to itself, I think. Um, and that, you know, it's it's played straight, like, in the sense of, um, I, I think it's better that, say, for instance, the we find out what we find out as the twist, as opposed to it being like the source, the whole. Uh, spectrum of the book where we don't know spoiler alert we don't know that he's turning into a dog um like that's not the premise on the face of it like it is for chicken chicken otherwise it'd probably be just as bad um that's like the final note but the fact also that there's a little bit of a further twist in that oh no he's not just turning into a dog he's turning back into a dog um, cause they were experimented on. It's like, that's good. That's pretty good. I'll go with that. Nice job. And, um, yeah, because you, he, R.L. Stein does do a pretty good job of faking us out with that one where, I mean, I felt like anyway, it did work on me as a kid where it's like, oh man, yeah, it's that lotion that he used. Boy, you know, um, what a heck of a problem he's got there. If only he hadn't used that lotion, then it's like, psych, he was a dog the whole time. The lotion had nothing to do with it. It was a red herring, as we call in the business. It's like, R.L. Stein, you're rocking my world right now. It also had this sequence, of, like the Battle of the Band sequence, where I don't remember if it's just him or other band members, but he starts transforming and growing hair all over. And then the it maybe has the best like deus ex machina explanation of like, how did nobody notice that something really weird was going on? was like, I think they win the battle because the judges are like, wow, great special effects, <laughs> which is like, what would you think the intent was of special effects that turn your band really hair? I don't know. Like, it seems like it should maybe tie into the song somewhat or the concept of the band. <laughs> Uh, as opposed to just like wow completely unrelated to the music they were doing they also started growing hair brilliant uh okay well we've been talking for a while i know you wanted to talk about series 2000 because i only have experience with cry of the cat and was immediately put off and disappointed by that um what's your defense of uh series 2000 jose Uh, a goosebumps for the new millennium (laughs) for the new age for the y2k crowd um, I'm going to have to look at the list of the various, I feel, I feel like I did mention this before, um, as far as just what my thoughts on the series as a whole was, I did feel like it was going for a slightly edgier tone. Um, like even in some of the books that I didn't read, like Invasion of the Body Squeezers, which was a part one and part two across two books. 
Um, just the threat that the body squeezers posed seemed much more uh, visceral to me than like, oh, this kid can fly now. You know, you know what I mean? Um, where it's just like, oh, this is, it's not just some kind of weird problem that I have to figure out. No, this is like a thing that's out for my blood. Um, that's how I felt about a lot of the series 2000 books and gosh darn it you know we might have to do a reread of one of these because i honestly don't remember a whole lot about some of the specific books um speaking of uh yeah picturing rl stein as a mermaid um on the cover of goosebumps uh <laughs> oh, wow. bride of the living dummy win a sail with the stars spine chilling disney cruise with rl stein <laughs> that would be a spine chilling cruise i think child me would be like no thank you <laughs> What you well, don't want to? I'll sign if you're listening. Uh, just that's not the context in which I particularly wish to meet you. You don't want to head out to the high seas with your favorite adult man. Look at his glamour shot in this in this sweepstakes entry in the back. It's just him, just completely like Buster Keaton deadpan <laughs> face. Like, hey, don't you want to go on a cruise with me? And it looks like Xerox to all hell. So it's like. Bachelor number one, Robert Stein. Like he's not even smiling. Like, wouldn't it be so much fun to go on a cruise with your Uncle Bob? It's just like jovial Bob. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a weird, that's a weird thing to have offered people, <laughs> kids especially. Like uh, I remember him uh, one year when I went to the convention that I go to in Orlando. He was there as a guest, and you know I went to his. Uh, his Q&A and he related a story about how, you know, like during the height of Goosebumps popularity, a similar um, stint that he did once was uh, he got to be in a parade at Disney World. Um, and he was like, <laughs> he was like standing up through the through the limousine sunroof, waving at all the kids as they passed by. And Mickey was also with him. Maybe it was a limousine. Maybe it was a float. I don't remember. But he was with Mickey Mouse. And as they, you know, <laughs> Drapes through the streets of Disney World, and there's Bob Stein waving at all the kids. All the kids are waving back, but what are they screaming? They're going, Mickey! Yeah! <laughs> Completely ignoring the middle-aged man <laughs> sitting next to him for no discernible reason. That's funny. Yeah, I feel like I'm hard on Bob, uh, old jovial Bob, and I, I don't mean to be because I do enjoy his persona, um, I like I've heard him on a couple of podcasts and he and his Twitter persona and he like he seems like a really funny cool guy. Uh, there's just something really funny about the idea of like a child being like I want to go on a cruise with R.L. Stein, <laughs> a fifty something man, possibly with a ponytail. Didn't he have like a ponytail at some point? No, I don't think he did. <laughs> oh, but... maybe he just looks like a guy who would have a ponytail <laughs> if he could grow enough hair. Sorry, Alstein. I love you. I hope you understand that we're we're saying this all affectionately. We're laughing with you, not at you. But um, yeah, going back to Goosebumps Series 2000, I know I mentioned like a Headless Halloween and Attack of the Graveyard Ghouls. You mentioned a one-two punch, but those seem like a one-two punch because uh, Headless Halloween, obviously. But I think even Attack of the Graveyard Ghouls, unless I'm misremembering something and like conflating <laughs> it maybe with like a... Uh, the Halloween dance short story from the Nightmare Hour collection that R.L. Stein wrote. But I feel like Attack of the Graveyard Ghouls also takes place on Halloween. But 
if it doesn't, it's a very Halloweeny book. And both of those, like, are like the first attempts, I believe, in the Goosebumps series to like deal with zombies in their natural state, uh, and not just like some kind of hinky, ooh, you know, way. Like they're, and you can tell from just the cover, like they are like rotting corpses. Yeah. Uh, coming back and wrecking some sweet, sweet vengeance on the human characters. Uh, you know, that's like one I remember like, oh yeah, that was pretty hardcore. Um, Headless Halloween, I feel like I walked away with that same vibe. Jekyll and Heidi, you know, that one was cool because <laughs> you just laugh every time you hear that. <laughs> you know, it just makes me think of how he says like, you know, uh, I come up with the premises of a lot of my Goosebumps books by making a title first and then fitting a story afterwards. And it's like, oh, you don't say. <laughs> you didn't think of like... Jekyll and Hyde story with like a female character and then go Jekyll and Heidi will be the name that started as Jekyll and Hyde. E. All right. So <laughs> to my typewriter. Yeah. Click, clack, click, clack. <laughs> um, but that one, I even remember like the, um, like the transformations uh, to the Hyde or the Hyde S characters were actually kind of like, you know, Ooh, that's some spooky stuff there. Like they're, transforming into genuine monsters it's not just you know some kind of guy with bad teeth and a cape (laughs) um so you know they 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 felt um they felt a little rougher around the edges i guess you'd say and um and in a thrilling way werewolf in the living room i seem to remember like that one was kind of creepy because yeah it was this guy who was in um that i i love I think the werewolf stories across the board are just about all good. Werewolf of Fever Swamp is pretty solid. Um, everybody loves werewolf skin, and guess what? I do too. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, they, you know, as as um, lame and low budget as the TV series might have been, they they did a pretty good job with that one because I remember that one genuinely creeping me out. You might have some nostalgia blinders on for that. I do not, because I rewatched that as an adult, and I think it held up pretty well. Mm-hmm. But I do have adults don't uh, sometimes still continue to the Goonies is not a good movie, everybody. I'm sorry. That's what Eric's really getting at. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I Back to the Future I, is a solid comedy. Is it one of the best movies of all time? No. <laughs> sorry. Hate me. Cancel me. Come at us, bros. Uh, but yeah, I think um, as lame as it is, I'm like, oh yeah, series 2000 could be a subject unto itself in this conversation. And it's like, okay, Jose, take it over. Um, I don't remember that much about them. I just remember how they made me feel. Is everybody satisfied with that? I hope you are. Cause that's all I got for now. Anyway, I think my suspicion of them was, uh, that like, cause they were sold as, you know, we were sold a bill of rights to use your phrase <laughs> that they were going to be like, yeah, more, more hardcore and edgier. But I feel like because Goosebumps started out like as a serious series and then like gradually declined in the jokiness more and more as the series went on, I guess I thought like, are they just going to sort of reset it to the level that Goosebumps was originally at and then pretend that it it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I read Cry of the Cat like with that kind of suspicion in my mind, and it was not hardcore or edgy uh, or scarier in any kind of way. Um, but looking at the covers, I could also see that like 
Well, maybe not for Earth Geeks Must Go, but like Attack of the Graveyard Ghouls does have a cover that seems to promise uh, a little bit more of a fright, whereas the Cry of the Cat cover is just a cat that looks, you know, like cats always look. Um, just like, grr, hiss, I'm a cat. I don't know. I think it's a pretty good cover myself. And I know, it's funny, I thought this was what you were going to comment on um, with the cover of Bride of the Living Dummy. Uh, and uh, I realized, oh, wait, that's not really like a new thought. I think other people like on the internet have pointed this out. Um, but I thought you were going to point out the fact that um, Chuck, <laughs> I gave it away, <laughs> Slappy's Bride bears a striking resemblance to another uh, walking, talking, menacing doll from popular media. Yeah, and this must have been like right after that, right? Because I think that came out in 98. Oh, for so Chuck, yeah. The same year, yeah. yeah. They're like, hey, you know what we should do? <laughs> we should give Slappy a bride and let's make him look exactly like that character. And it's funny because a lot of people um, reminisce about the cover, especially to the first Night of the Living Dummy uh, book in the same way that they do about like the VHS covers to the Child's Play um, movies. Like they they kind of hold them in that same regard. Like, oh God, this creepy smiling doll just peering at me from the shelf. They uh, they uh, achieve the same effect. So I guess it's only right that Chucky should make a cameo appearance as Slappy's bride. Not the manifestation that we perhaps wanted, but it's the one we deserve. Shut up. Eric Eric gave me a look. Even though you didn't hear anything, he gave me a look. You also want to work a Run, Forest, Run reference in there, Mr. Dated, hacky reference guy? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so did you follow this Goosebumps series onto the next iteration, which was what? Was it Horrorland? Nope, that was after my time. Because um, there was, you know, whereas from the original series, 97, picking up in 98 with Goosebumps 2000, there was a... I don't even know how much of a time gap it was, but it was a significant enough time gap for me to stop reading Goosebumps books and and to move on to other things. So I have not read any of the Latter-day series, uh, Goosebumps Horrorland, Slappy World, Super Chiller, Knock Your Socks Off, whatever. R.L. Stein's got in his bag of tricks these days. Um, I might. I might someday. Um, But, you know, not today. Yeah, I read one of the Slappy World entries. Uh, speaking of Monster Blood, it was Monster Blood is Back is what it was called. Mm-hmm. And I read it because I, um, R.L. Stein had a like a virtual, this was, you know, when the lockdown was going on. So he had like a virtual, you know, uh, discussion, conversation, whatever, with Victoria Schwab, mm-hmm. who um, is popular. I read one of her books and didn't like it. Uh, but we don't need to get into that. But the entry to get into this, like you could go into this chat room and it wasn't being saved or preserved. It was just like one time only live event. You go and watch these two authors talk. So I, you had to like buy the book. Um, so I bought, yeah, uh, whatever I just said it was called. Monster Blood's Back. I bought that just as my ticket into the this chat. Because like I said, I enjoy R.L. Science persona. I like hearing him talk about stuff. Um, one of the things that he admitted on that was, have you ever heard the story that he tells about, like, I got started as a writer because I, you know, went up to the attic and found an old typewriter and I brought it down and I started writing stories on it. 
I'm sure that I've come across it. Uh, he admitted on this chat that that was not true. He just made that up because it was just like a more interesting Romantic. story than, yeah. <laughs> um, so I read Monster Blood is Back and was surprised by the fact that it was like exactly the same. <laughs> it was like, wow, that's impressive. Yeah, like 30 years later, this is the exact same world. Um, still got it, if you can say it in those in that. It incorporated reality television because they were on like a baking show that was like, you know, scouting for like child talent. There were bullies who kept like sabotaging the bake, you know, in the middle of this reality show taping. Um, And like, I guess the book didn't address this. I was like, I guess you could kind of explain that away by being like the producers are encouraging this for like fake on air drama, like reality TV always does. Mm -hmm. It didn't address that. It just basically came across as like, nobody was paying attention to these two bully kids (laughs) as they were like, you know, going over here and like turning off the oven and like doing (laughs) adding stuff into their, yeah. Like adding extra spice into their, (laughs) uh, and, Slappy World uses a device not unlike Tales from the Crypt, like where Slappy is basically the Crypt Keeper. Like there's like little check-ins where his dialogue is like commenting on the story. And I thought like that might be the best possible use of Slappy because I don't like him in the world. Yeah. (laughs) But as like just like a wisecracking host for these stories, uh, I think he works a lot better. Cool. Well, that's all we got tonight. (laughs) I don't have anything else to say about Goosebumps to you. <laughs> Honestly, uh we we do still have a pile here in front of us um that we could probably reminisce about one thing specifically or the other, but I think we covered a lot of ground especially with regards to just our general feelings, things we thought were overrated, underrated. We've referred to a number of these already even just passingly in our previous comments. Uh so yeah, I th- we're probably at the two and a half hour mark already, if not longer. So I think any uh, further conversations should be reserved for their own individual episodes or some such in the future. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this very special episode of Black Magic Treehouse. Uh, this was a lovely, lovely chance to get to reminisce with Eric in uh real space as it were about this uh shared uh, the shared love that we have um it feels right that it should have that it should be this because uh in a lot of sense in many senses this is uh where it all started for us uh, in one way or another so if uh you yourself are an uber goosebumps fan you have some of your own reminiscences to share with us or maybe uh debates if we had a take that you didn't agree with please reach out and tell us why you can get in touch with us on either instagram or through our email address which is blackmagictreehousepod at gmail.com and that's the same handle for us on instagram black magic treehouse pod and yeah let us know anything that you loved about the series that you hated about the series um because you know there's plenty to not always be enamored with as we illustrated in today's conversation um and just would love to hear from any listeners out there in general i mentioned in the last episode if you have been listening to our show uh we would absolutely love it if you even just took the quick second to give us a a little rating on apple Podcasts, just to let us know how we're doing um and i know i've mentioned before i would love to hear from people to especially 
know if there are any topics, authors, specific titles, series that you'd like for us to talk about um, so that we can get those highlighted on the show, um, just so that we can cater this to your needs, because really that's what we're really here for, your needs, not ours. Right? Jose, you're pretty. Exactly. Pretty ugly. Uh, it was slappy the whole time. It wasn't Eric at all. <laughs> well, thanks for listening again, folks. Stay well and stay spooky. Bye. So long. <laughs>